Would you open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7? The sermon this morning is from chapter 7, verse 24 through verse 30. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to grab one from in front of you. You can find Mark, chapter 7, on page 843. Let's give our attention to God's word now, Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 24. And from there Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for your word this morning because your word reveals to us Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we marvel at Jesus this morning. Paul says in the book of Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Father, we confess that Jesus stands at the center of everything. And everything exists for his sake. Father, we praise you for in Christ we find grace and mercy and love and kindness. And Paul says that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That through Christ, reconciliation has come and it has come by his his blood. Father, we rejoice in this Savior. And Father, we ask for your help this morning, that we might marvel at Jesus like Paul marvels at Jesus, that when we look into your word, our, our hearts would rejoice, that our, our mouths would sing praises of Jesus and all that he has accomplished. Father, we ask that you would grow our knowledge of who Jesus is and what he has done this morning. We pray that you would grow our faith in him this morning that we would entrust ourselves all the more to him because of this word from Mark chapter 7. And Father, we cast ourselves upon you this morning. We ask for all of these good things, but in and of ourselves, we cannot do it. And so we ask for your blessed spirit. Be our help this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're working our way through the Gospel of Mark. 
And particularly to Mark is his emphasis on miracles. And what we find this morning in Mark chapter 7 is another miracle, another mighty deed of Jesus. And we've become quite used to Jesus doing these extraordinary, miraculous things in the Gospel of Mark. From scene to scene, from village to to village, we find exorcisms, healings, and and nature miracles. Jesus commands the waves and, and the seas, and they answer him. And we have heard the awe and the reactions of the crowds. They were all amazed, Mark says, and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. What Mark is telling us is truly amazing. And Mark is unrelenting as he tells us this story about Jesus. While the other gospel writers like Matthew and Luke will break up these these action scenes with, with long discourses where Jesus teaches the Sermon on the Mount, for example, Mark intentionally moves us from story to story, from mighty deed to mighty deed, from miracle to miracle. And there's a dangerous temptation as we read the Gospel of Mark, and there's a temptation for us. All the action, all of these miracles, all of these mighty deeds can desensitize us to what is going on in the story. Because we're so used to, to reading about these events, we begin to brush them off. We begin to overlook important details. We begin to miss out on the unique glory that Jesus is, is presented to us as. Even more, we begin to miss out on the saving significance of Christ. Yes, Jesus has already cast out another demon. Here's just another demon story. And desensitization happens all the time. If you take one particular medicine too much, your, your body may become less responsive to it. You might need stronger doses or you might have to switch to a different medicine. If you eat too much of the same rich dessert, your taste buds become overloaded. No longer does that dessert taste so, so good as it did on the first bite. And so we have to caution ourselves against this temptation. Every mighty deed, every miracle is extremely important for Mark because Jesus' deeds are revelatory. This means that what Jesus does reveals who Jesus truly is and what his gospel is all about, what his mission is. And Mark wants us to know Jesus and understand the gospel through the actions of Jesus. This is how we come to know Christ for Mark. So we could say Mark's Mark's theology is Christology, the study of Christ through action, through enactment. In fact, every important piece of knowledge that we've come to know about Jesus in the Gospel of Mark has either been revealed through a mighty deed or has been confirmed by a mighty deed. In chapter 1, verse 22, we learn that Jesus has unparalleled authority in his preaching. He preaches unlike the scribes. Mark records this, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And how is this revealed to us? How is this confirmed to us? How do we know that Jesus has this type of authority? Well, in that account, what does Jesus do? Well, he casts out an unclean spirit when he enters into the synagogue. In chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus says this. It's revealed, Mark says, Jesus has authority on earth to forgive sins. And how do we know that Jesus has authority on earth to forgive sins? How is this, this fact about Jesus, who he is and what he has come to do, been confirmed to us? Well, the paralytic, a man who has not walked, picks up his bed and goes home. That's how we know Jesus has authority on earth to forgive sins. 
In chapter 2, verse 28, Jesus announces, So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. What an amazing thing to say. Jesus picks up the law of God. He picks up the Sabbath day, this holy sign of the covenant between God and, and mankind, and he reinterprets it and he applies it forcefully, things only God can do. And how do we know that Jesus is Lord even of the Sabbath? How is this point pressed home to us? Well, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. This confirms Jesus' statement. And we've come to grapple with Jesus' deity. And how have we come to grapple with Jesus' deity that he himself is God? Well, Jesus calms the storm. And the disciples lead us in questioning. They say, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? We've come to know that Jesus is the shepherd of Israel, that he is the the promised shepherd that Ezekiel wrote about in chapter 34 of his prophecy. And how have we come to know that Jesus is going to take care of the people of God? Well, he feeds the 5,000. And so when we come to our text, we must let this pattern shape our understanding. Mark has placed the story before us about the Syrophoenician woman and her demon-possessed daughter so that we might know who Christ is and what his mission is all about. This passage is Christologically loaded, we could say. And so our plan for tackling this story is going is to go in two parts. In the first part of this sermon, we're just going to walk slowly through this text, looking verse after verse after verse. And our aim here is to note the many details that Mark presents before us and pay careful attention to them. And this will give way to a second and harder work. What we're going to do in the second part of the sermon is we're going to gather up all of these details. We're going to gather up all of the data that we just saw and heard from this passage and bring the data to bear upon three important questions. And the questions are these, if you're taking notes. Who is Jesus? What is his mission? And who can be a member among God's people? Or we can rephrase the third question. What does it take to be a member among God's people. What do you have to do? So we can begin the first part. And so would you, if you have your Bibles, look at verse 24. Mark says this, And from there Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Jesus' ministry throughout the Gospel of Mark has been like a pressure cooker. The the heat has been turned on. The longer Jesus ministers within Galilee and around Capernaum, the more pressure is exerted upon him. Jesus is constantly followed and sometimes impeded and even harassed by the crowds. The sick are always before him. The hungry are always near. The needy are always present. And while Jesus is growing fame and the burden of the crowds wore on him, Surely the animosity he receives from the scribes and the Pharisees was particularly grinding for him. These men were always watching Jesus and his disciples to see if there was an infraction that they could pick on. They were looking for blood. They had set themselves to destroy him. So they were watching Jesus and they were dialoguing and debating with him at all times. And so with all the pressure mounting, Jesus evacuates. And Jesus' desire is expressly given in the text. He did not want anyone to know. In other instances, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has tried to find rest by going out into the wilderness or by crossing the, the sea by boat. 
But it always seems that the, the eager crowd finds him. The crowd has this, this radar, and they are always finding Jesus, even when he tries to sneak away. So in our text, Jesus, in search of rest, does not simply leave the city for the wilderness, but he leaves the land of Israel itself. He's crossing international boundaries, we could say. He travels northwest to the Gentile region of Tyre, where he can find some needed rest, where nobody will know him. Now, we have to note that Mark is drawing our attention to this geographical move. Jesus has left the Holy Land for a land filled with paganism and idol worship. Jesus has left the covenant people of God for those who do not worship God nor know the God of the Scriptures. It's quite a fascinating thing just to think about. Here Jesus leaves the land of Israel, and he's walking among pagans, perhaps even going into a pagan's house. But even outside of the land of Israel, among godless Gentiles, idol worshipers, Jesus cannot remain hidden. And Mark records the intruder of Jesus' rest in verses 25 and 26. Mark tells us, But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. So this woman that we meet in verses 25 and verse 26 is like so many of the characters we've met so far in the Gospel of Mark. She reminds us of the men who brought the paralytic to Jesus. They would not let anything separate them from finding Jesus. So they removed the roof and set the man down before Jesus. She reminds us of the unnamed woman with the flow of blood. She came in desperation and in need of Jesus. This woman reminds us of Jairus who came to Jesus and fell down at his feet imploring, my little daughter's at the point of death. You must come and save her. But as we look at this text, there's one glaring difference in this story. All of these people were Israelites. Jairus, the paralytic and his friends, the unnamed woman. They were all physical descendants of Abraham. They were Abraham's great-great-great-grandchildren, we could say. They had received the covenants. They've received the promises of God. They had the holy scriptures in their hands. But here is this woman. She lives in Gentile land. Even more, Mark says, she was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. She had no birthright with the people of Israel. She had no covenant. She had no holy scripture. She was an unholy Gentile. So as we read Mark, we have come to expect that those who come to Jesus find that their needs are always met. It doesn't matter if they're an unclean leper or if they're a lowly and poor woman or if they're a well-to-do rich man. If you come with humble faith, if you come in desperation, if you come in need, what do you find from Jesus? Well, you find salvation. Again and again in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus doesn't begrudge people for their needs. He doesn't question people for their needs. He doesn't neglect them. But all of these people we have met in the Gospel of Mark have been Israelites. And so we have to ask, what is going to happen to this Gentile woman, Syrophoenician by birth? So Jesus responds to the woman, verse 27. And he said to her, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. 
While Jesus openly affirms and welcomes other, others, because this woman is a Gentile, because she's a Syrophoenician by birth, Jesus does not initially affirm or, or welcome her. It's like Jesus is putting out the stiff arm, keeping her at arm's length. And even what is more unexpected in this story is what Jesus calls this woman in this parable, a dog. This is how Jesus classifies her. So what are we to do with Jesus' proverb? What are we to do with Jesus' words in verse 27? A dog. Some interpreters try to lessen the shocking impact of Jesus' words by pointing out that the word dog appears in the diminutive form. If you know Spanish, the, the diminutive form is used quite a bit. And so Jesus could be saying to the woman, it's not right to take the children's bread and, and throw it to the little dog. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the puppy or the household dog. And there's merit to reading the text like that. But at the end of the day, it really doesn't soften the blow of what Jesus is saying to this woman. Little dog or big dog, household dog or mangy dog, Jesus still classifies this woman in the category of dog. It doesn't matter what you call me. If you call me a little dog or a household dog, it it still means dog. And so what is Jesus implying here in this parable? Has Jesus become a racist, preferring one ethnicity over another? Has he, has he become like the scribes and the Pharisees? What Jesus means becomes clear when we look carefully at how the Gentile woman responds to Jesus. The woman's response to Jesus interprets Jesus' parable for us. So look at verse 28. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. This is amazing. This would not happen in our day. The woman accepts and uses the term that Jesus applies to her. She's not offended by what Jesus just called her. She agrees, yes, Lord, you speak well of me. Dog is an appropriate classification for who I am. But we cannot overly focus on the term dog and miss the forest for the trees. What is it that this woman and Jesus are talking about in these verses. And the issue at stake here is the ministry of Jesus, and more particularly, who is it that can share in the ministry of Jesus? Who can share in Jesus' redemptive mission? And Jesus clearly teaches in verse 27 that his ministry is first for Israel, and he gives a parable to press this point. And we need to lean in on this parable that Jesus gives, and we need to try to get at the logic of what Jesus is talking about here. And so we can update Jesus' parable into our own context. What does a wise and thoughtful mother do for her family, even more for her children? Well, she makes a shopping list. She, She considers what her children need. And then she goes off to the store, and she she purchases what her children need. She buys groceries, and then she prepares dinner, and then what? What happens next in the story? Does she spread what she bought and prepared and cooked before the dog? Does she place the dinner in dog's bowls? No, that would be ridiculous. No mother does that. No, she puts that which she bought and prepared and cooked before her children until they are fully satisfied. And in the same way, Jesus has come to set his salvation first and principally before the covenant children of God, those who have received the promises of God. But there's something incredibly remarkable about this woman. The crowds have heard Jesus' parables and they have not understood them. The disciples have understood Jesus' parables and they have not understood them in their own intellectual vigor. 
But here is a Gentile woman outside of the covenant, outside of the land of Israel, and she presses into Jesus' parable with faith. And what does she find in Jesus' words in this cryptic saying? She finds salvation in Jesus' words. What to so many of us would seem like a rejection and hindrance to faith, Jesus says, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to throw the children's bread to the dogs. She finds hope and solace and salvation in these words. And so the woman reasons with Jesus with his own words and vigorously grabs hold of Jesus' ministry for herself, and she will not let go of Jesus. And we can just try to get into her head this morning and figure out her logic. And I think it goes something like this. Yes, Jesus, I agree that the children are to be fed first. This only makes sense. Israel was given the promises. They were given the covenant. They were given the Holy Scriptures. They should have first crack at the Messiah and his blessings. But even if the children are fed first, even to the brim and they cannot eat anymore, their stomachs are bulging, the dog is always fed even if it is fed with the crumbs that fall from the messy children. Even more importantly, Jesus, I am willing. I am desirous for those crumbs that fall from the table. I need them. I am more eager and desperate for your salvation than a dog is for table scraps. Won't you give me some of the crumbs that fall from the table? When we consider what the Gentile woman says to Jesus, this is an extraordinary statement of faith. She confesses the necessity and sufficiency of Jesus' ministry, even in the leftovers. The scraps, the crumbs, are more than enough for her and all of her needs. Jesus is so good, she understands. Jesus is so sufficient, she gets it, that the crumbs of his ministry are more than enough for her. They can satisfy even her. And Jesus himself recognizes what's going on in this woman's heart. And he responds to her in verse 29, and he says, For this statement, imagine the joy in Jesus' heart as this woman reasoned with him. For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And Matthew's gospel records the same scene, and, and Jesus gives this commendation to the woman. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. This woman had faith, and Jesus blesses her. So the Gentile woman comes in faith, and what does she receive? What does she find from Jesus? She finds the salvation of the Lord. And we find the conclusion to the story in verse 30. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So there's the story. As we assess this passage as a whole and the doctrine that we're to glean from it, we have to admit that this story is a strange passage to the extreme. Here's a Gentile woman literally wrestling with Jesus for salvation, something we have not met in the Gospel of Mark. Here's this strange parable that just bends our minds around. It's hard to, hard to wrap our minds around what's going on here. Why do we have such a hard time understanding this text? because we stand so far removed from the tension of what's going on. We stand after Jesus' resurrection. We stand after the great commission where Jesus commanded his followers to do what? Go and make disciples of all nations. We stand after the day of Pentecost when, when tongues were heard in many different languages. We stand in the day of world missions. 
Even in our own church budget, we spend significant money to send people out to the nation so that they might hear the word of Jesus. And to us, this passage strikes us as strange. But we have to understand that before Jesus' day, that during Jesus' day, and even directly after Jesus' day, there was significant tension and confusion about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. There were serious questions whether Gentiles could share in the salvation of God, whether they could receive the same spirit as Jews. There were questions of what Gentiles would have to do to become a member of God's holy people, for them to experience the salvation of the Lord. And we find this in the New Testament. The early church is is wrestling with this question in the book of Galatians, in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 15, verse 1, records the false teaching of some. And here we find this. Some are preaching, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So Mark has placed this story before us of the Syrophoenician woman in order to help us wrestle and sort out this tension. So now we can bring the story of the Syrophoenician woman to bear upon our three questions. And our first question is this, who is Jesus? This question is integral to Mark's gospel. The very reason Mark wrote his gospel is that we might know who Jesus is, even more that we might confess who Jesus truly is, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. But the great question for us, we've read Mark chapter 1, verse 1. We know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The question for us is, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ of God? How do we fill that in? What kind of definition do we give? And Mark provides definition and meaning to this confession throughout the stories that he places before us. It is in hearing the preaching and teaching of Jesus. It is in carefully listening to the stories of Jesus heal the sick and cast out demons. It is by reading the story of Jesus forgiving the sins of the paralytic. It is by being caught up in the amazement of Jesus walking on the water that we grasp what it means for Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God. And Mark is pushing us through these stories towards a a particular understanding of who this Jesus is and what it means for him to be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus does what the God of Israel does. Jesus acts as the God of Israel does. Jesus speaks as the God of Israel does. And most importantly, Jesus fulfills the promises of the God of Israel. He has come to save his people. But when we come to Mark chapter 7, when we read the story of the Syrophoenician woman, this story provides an interesting wrinkle in this confession. Jesus, the Son of God, leaves Israel and he brings salvation to a Gentile by birth, a woman outside of the covenant, a woman outside the law of God, a woman outside the land of Israel. What Mark is doing this morning is he he desires that our confession, our knowledge of Jesus would deepen this morning. Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ, is not only the Savior of Israel, but he is the Savior of Gentiles. And he wants us to confess that great point. In fact, what we we see happening in Mark chapter 7 is a direct fulfillment of what God, what the God of Israel promised from of old. If you read your Old Testament with With careful examination, we find this happening even in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 49, we're allowed to eavesdrop on this amazing conversation. And in this conversation, there's two partners. There's the Lord, and then there's this servant. And the servant has been tasked to save Israel, to redeem Israel. 
And in verse 6 of chapter 49, the Lord is speaking to his servant, and the Lord says this amazing thing. He says this, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. So what is the Lord saying? It's too light. It's too small for my glory for you just to save Israel. So what does the Lord say to his servant? He says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The Lord is saying, for the sake of my glory... Your ministry, O servant, is going to spread out from the land of Israel. It's too light for you. Something more glorious needs to happen. This salvation needs to to stretch out. And in verse 7, the Lord goes on to say to his, his servant, he says, Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful. So what's going on here? Isaiah wrote of a day when salvation would literally spill out of Israel. And what we see in Mark chapter 7 is the beginning of that day. It's a a foretaste of what is to come. Here in the story of the Syrophoenician woman, we get a, a glorious glimpse of the true identity of Jesus, the Savior of Gentiles, a light to the nations. We have to let this glorious truth settle in on us. Jesus is not a tribal deity. His power and authority are not located to a specific geographical location. Jesus doesn't just do mighty things within the land of Israel, but he can do mighty things anywhere. His salvation is not bound up for one ethnicity. Everywhere you go, any person you meet, Jesus is equally applicable to them. It doesn't matter if you're in Africa or or Canada or in the land of Israel. Jesus' salvation is equally applicable. He is the Savior of all nations. This brings us to a second question. What is Jesus' mission? And this story helps us clarify what Jesus has come to accomplish. While Jesus' proverb to the woman seems so scandalous in our day, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. This proverb, this parable, reveals the priority of Jesus' mission. When you read the Old Testament, whether you are in the book of Genesis or in the book of Isaiah, you find countless promises and prophecies. You find countless consolations and warnings. But we have to understand that these promises, these prophecies, these consolations, these warnings that we find through, through in the book of Genesis, in the book of Isaiah, wherever you read in the Old Testament, were given to a certain people. Who are these people? Well, the children of Abraham, the people of Israel. And so when Jesus comes along and he pronounces to the Syrophoenician woman, let the children be fed first, he makes known that neither he nor the Lord has abandoned their word. The mission has not been diverted or aborted or supplemented. Jesus preaches loudly and clearly that none of the promises made to the children of Abraham will fall short. The Lord will not renege on his prophecies, but he will fulfill every single word, even if Israel and all of its leaders reject him and crucify him. The promises will come true. The children will be fed first. Even more, Jesus reveals that Israel will see the accomplishment 
of the word of God with their very own eyes and hear of the deeds of Yahweh with their very own ears. All that was written from the, from the book of Genesis to the book of Malachi will be filled up and put on full display in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus' words here, let the children be fed first, reveal that the Lord is utterly true and faithful to all of his promises. What does this mean for the Syrophoenician woman? What does this mean for us? How do we deal with Jesus' words here? As we can clearly see in Mark chapter 7, the Lord's faithfulness to his promises do not mean exclusion for the nations. Jesus' parable does not keep this woman away from Jesus, but rather his parable draws her in with her faith. The one finds salvation in Jesus' words. In fact, we can say this. Jesus' mission to fulfill all the promises of God serves as the basis for the inclusion of the nations. Because Jesus faithfully fulfills the word of God from Genesis to Malachi, all those who are far and near can experience the salvation of God because Jesus is the faithful servant prophesied in the book of Isaiah. What, was, what is going to happen? Well, there's going to be light for the nations. There's going to be light for the Gentiles. And as we move throughout the gospel story, we find that this theme strengthens and grows. Just before his death and resurrection, the great fulfillment of the scriptures with Isaiah, what the book of Genesis wrote about, a Christ who would die and be raised, Jesus preaches this in Mark chapter 13, verse 10. He says, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. What Jesus is saying, in light of my fulfillment of the scriptures, what's going to happen? This, this thing is going to go global. We find this even happening more clearly in Matthew 28. Matthew 28, Jesus has died and he has been raised. We have witnessed the fulfillment of the scriptures. All that the scriptures wrote about and prophesied have now been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And what does Jesus say after he faithfully fulfills the word of God? Every last sentence, well, he says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And so we can say, because Jesus faithfully fulfills the will of God and all the promises to Israel, because he feeds the children first, the salvation is going to spill out like a flood to the nations. And so when we read Jesus' words, when we hear this cryptic parable, let the children be fed first. We must understand that Jesus is preaching a powerful message to us. He preaches to us this. Yes, the Lord is faithful to all of his promises, and I am utterly committed to the plan of the Lord. Nothing, no one will deter me from accomplishing all that is written of me in the scriptures. I will personally see to it that none of the promises fall short. The children will be fed first, and salvation, it's going to flow everywhere. And brothers and sisters, this is a great truth to let sink into our hearts, and it's the truth that we need to hear day by day, week by week, year by year. God is utterly faithful to his word. This is a word that can sustain us when we're weary and when we're tired. It's a word that can sustain us when we're low and discouraged. God is faithful to his promises. The children will be fed first. All the promises of God stand secure, supremely secure in Christ Jesus. He holds them with a tight grip. This brings us to our last question. Who can be a member among God's people? The story finally helps us what membership among God's people entails. How do I get into salvation? 
How do I get into the people of God? How do I get into Christ? Those are the most important questions we can ask. How can I share in the ministry of Jesus? And in this story, in Mark chapter 7, Mark takes pains to reveal certain information about this woman to us. He doesn't tell us if this woman is rich or poor. He doesn't care about it. He doesn't tell us if this woman is married or not married. He doesn't care about it. He doesn't tell us if this woman has six children or ten children. He doesn't care about it. Rather, he skips by all of these details and points us towards one issue, the issue of ethnicity. This woman lives outside of Israel. This woman is a Gentile by birth. This woman has no legal right or representation within the covenant of God. This woman has not received the law of God and she has not kept the law of God. This woman has not followed the ceremonies or the customs of Israel. But Mark wants us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this woman does not, by outward standards, belong to Israel. You look at her. As Mark tells the story, she does not belong to Israel in any such way. She doesn't have the law. She doesn't have the covenant. But here's the point that Mark is drawing us towards. While this woman differs from Israel in every single way, she receives the same exact salvation as all the other Israelites do. She receives the same Savior as Jairus does. She receives the same Savior as the leper. She receives the same Savior as the woman with the flow of blood. She receives the same Savior as the man with the withered hand and countless others that have not been named in the Gospel of Mark. She gets Jesus just like the rest of them. What Mark is doing here is he's reframing and reforming the theology of Israel and what it means to be an Israelite. Membership among the people of God is not dependent upon birth or family, Mark preaches to us. Membership in Israel is not determined by keeping the law of God or some outward ceremonies. Circumcision or uncircumcision counts for nothing, Mark preaches. Membership in the redeemed is not dependent upon religious rank or education. Rather, Mark is preaching, he's preaching powerfully. Membership in Israel, membership among the redeemed of God is determined by one matter, And on this matter, all people stand or fall, men or women, Africans or Canadians. We all stand on one matter, whether or not we will take Jesus at his word. Whether we will come to Christ in faith and latch hold of his words and obey them. And this story reveals, the Syrophoenician woman reveals, you get into salvation, you get into Christ, you get into the people of God by simply taking Jesus at his word, by simply believing upon him. Mark is doing an amazing thing as he tells the story about Jesus. Here are the scribes and the Pharisees, men trained in the scriptures. Men who, who keep the ceremonies of Israel with, with zeal and vigor, so much zeal and vigor that they, they place fences around the law. But here comes Jesus and he's preaching the gospel. And what do they do? They will not accept Jesus at his word. But here is the Syrophoenician Here's a gentle, a woman living outside of the land, and she proves herself a more faithful Israelite than all of those men. Why? Because she takes Jesus at his word. What a glorious truth to consider this morning. This is the gospel. Jesus calls us to take us, take him at his word. And is not the gospel the most simple and the most beautiful thing? So we can ask ourselves, what does Jesus desire of me today? I've heard the Syrophoenician woman. I've heard this story. Now, what does Jesus want from me? We could phrase it differently. We could phrase it more strongly. What does Jesus demand from me today? 
Well, he demands this, faith and repentance. This is what he desires and demands of us. And so what does it mean to, to be a people of faith and a people of repentance in light of the story of the Syrophoenician woman? Well, repentance and faith is a twofold work. Jesus desires that in repentance we would stop up our ears to all the other voices that we hear. Voices day by day call for our attention. They, determine to seek, determine to, 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 they seek to determine our story, our identity, our calling. And Jesus calls us this morning in repentance to, to shut up our ears, to turn a deaf ear to every other voice. And he calls us to faith. What does it mean to be a person of faith? It means to heed and to seek and let your story and your life and your identity to be determined by one voice and one voice alone, Jesus Christ. He calls us to take him at his word this morning. And when we do this, when the story of the Syrophoenician woman is fulfilled in our own lives, when we're people of repentance and faith, shunning all the voices of the world and heeding only Christ's voice, we find salvation. And Jesus' word to the Syrophoenician woman is yet true Today, for all those who come to Christ with faith and repentance, he says, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Salvation belongs. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile, if you're a Syrophoenician by birth, whether you're Canadian, whether you're American, whether you're Nigerian, whether you're a Jew. Salvation belongs to those who repent and to those who believe. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. We need it. We need to know more of Christ. We need to know more of his gospel. We need to know more of what's demanded of us in the gospel. So, Father, we pray. Give us faith. Give us repentance. We desire to be a people who have shut up ears. We don't want to hear what the, what the world is saying, what other voices are speaking. We desire to hear the voice of your son and the voice of your son alone. We pray do this for us now, in Christ's name.